Our Old Testament lesson is taken from Proverbs chapter 25, verses 27 and 28. It is not good to eat too much honey, nor is it honorable to search out matters that are too deep. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. This is the word of the Lord. New Testament lesson comes once again from Galatians chapter 5, our famous fruit of the spirit passage, as well as our specific text for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to take the liberty to, since this is the last of our fruit of the spirit's uh, sermons, of reading the fuller context of Galatians 5 to remind us there. So I'll start with Galatians 5 verse 13 and read to the end of our fruit of the spirit passage where Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19 says, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then our passage, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, And today, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And then our text from 1 Corinthians, demonstrating self-control. Chapter 9, beginning with verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. For everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm sure that you've heard of the famous study that Stanford researchers did in the 70s. They offered kids marshmallows, right? And they said, here's the deal, kids. You can either have this one marshmallow, or you can wait a little bit, and I'll give you two. But if you eat the one right now, you can't have the second one, right? 
I mean, that's like cruel and unusual research methodology right from the beginning, right? A bunch of the kids wanted the second marshmallow, but they couldn't wait, so they just had the one, and they gobbled it up as fast as they could, and they lost the second because of it. Now, of course, the reason that this Stanford study is so famous, and the reason it's taken seriously instead of just laughed at, is not because the the meaning of life is to just have as many marshmallows as possible, of course. We all know that the stakes are actually much higher than that when it comes to self-control. Self-control is the last of our fruit of the Spirit. And so we'll ask, as we have been, what's the fake secular fruit of self-control? What's the fake religious fruit of self-control? What's the real thing? And then finally, how does Jesus show us self-control? So first, the fake fruit of secular self-control. I was saying last week that gentleness, our subject, was not valued in ancient cultures. Well, guess what? By contrast, today's fruit, self-control, was the great value of the Greek world, especially among thinkers, philosophers. Tim Keller makes a great observation. He says that religious people, people that have a lot of zeal for God, they have a lot of self-control because they want to please God and to get rewards from him, right? What happens when religious people have children? Oftentimes, he says, they become, they become stoics. They want to have, the kids want to have the same self-control, but not for God's sake, but for their sake, so they can have a better life. And then he says, Stoics grow up, and they have children, but their kids are not religious or Stoic. They are, he says, Epicurean. In other words, they get rid of the self-discipline part, and they keep only the for-myself part. They say, forget self-control. I'm having fun now. I want my best life. Immediately. Now, insofar as our culture is post-religious, I think it's pretty well divided, don't you, between the Stoics and the Epicureans, right? Um, some people, mostly older people, but not always, still emphasize hard work and discipline and delayed gratification. Two marshmallows later, people, wait. Some people, mostly younger people, just want to have their best lives now, right? Why would I wait, mom and dad? Sometimes kids grow up a little and they realize that actually, you know what? I do want two marshmallows and I'm willing to wait a little bit for the second one. But the principle, whether young or old, whether stoic or epicurean, whether disciplined or indulgent, is still self the goal is to please yourself, whether it's now or later on. And Keller points out again that often the culture's emphasis on self-discipline can either lead to pride, it's kind of obvious, or ironically, it can lead oftentimes to addiction. Self-control leads to addiction. I mean, it's not hard to imagine, right? You lose five kilograms, and all of a sudden you start looking around, look down on people who eat marshmallows, right? Where's your self-discipline? You could look like me if you would just lay off the marshmallows. 
And along the way, they've become addicted to fad diets or to intense workout regimens that are unhealthy. They've even become addicted sometimes to feeling hungry. That can happen. Or let's say we decide, you know, at ETHA or at UBS, I'm going to just give the best presentations out of all of my classmates and colleagues. And so you work tirelessly, right? You knock it out of the park. That's an American baseball metaphor. You do really well with your presentation. And then you look at everybody else's presentations, and you're kind of like, what's with you people? Your presentations are garbage compared to mine. But along the way, in all of your striving and hard work, you become addicted to caffeine pills. Or you become addicted to the affirmation that people give you for what you've done. The 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he sought to become a new kind of human being. And one of the ways he did that was by self-control, by strictly regulating his diet, and by constantly hiking the steep alpine trails, in, especially in Canton Graubünden. He went from vegetarian to carnivore to like completely fasting. Uh, in fact, his biographer, John Cagg, went to Graubünden to kind of retrace Nietzsche's steps to sort of breathe the Nietzschean air of the Alps there. And he says also to try to get control of his life the way Nietzsche did. And John Cagg says, you know what happened? I ended up addicted to dangerous mountain climbing. I ended up anorexic. And either of these things could have killed me while I was striving for self-control. Getting control of yourself can easily mean, can't it, losing control of yourself. The problem is that whether you're Epicurean or Stoic, whether you're fanatical about self-discipline or you're addicted to fun and pleasure, the culture is telling you, just do it for yourself, whatever it is. Take self-discipline or reject it, but do it for yourself. So there's the secular fake fruit of self-control. What about the religious fake fruit? I mentioned that sometimes religious people have, end up having stoic kids, right? And stoic kids have Epicurean kids. I was thinking, you know what often happens is that a lot of times when pleasure-seeking and self-indulgent parents have kids, what do those kids end up doing? A lot of times they turn back, ironically, to religion. In fact, young women who grew up with indulgent parents who let them do anything, they often run into the arms of religious cults. Young men especially who don't have a father who sets boundaries and shows them loving discipline, they often run into the arms of radical Islam or into fundamentalistic Christian religious sects and fringe groups. The same secular culture that pushes people out of mainstream religion can end up ironically pushing people back a couple generations down the line into even more dangerous kinds of religion. All religious versions of self-control tell you essentially this. Stop living for yourself. Live for God instead. 
And along the way, God becomes either the demanding parent that you never had, or he becomes the demanding parent standing behind the demanding parents that you did have. Religion asks you to cut a deal. If you'll be self-controlled and submit to the rules, well, God will be obligated to give you marshmallows and to give you good jobs and a good spouse and to give you eternal paradise. And so religion like this, under the regime of religious self-control, is purely transactional. It's business. I pay with my submission. God gives me the self-interested outcomes that I want. I keep my hands off the one marshmallow. God gives me two marshmallows later on. Now, I don't think I have to tell you, do I, that religious self-control can make you even more proud than its secular cousin, right? Religious people look down on all kinds of people. Just one example, religious successful people will look down on the poor and say, you never get a second marshmallow because God hates your laziness. Too bad you're not self-controlled and religious like I am. And that's just to get started. But the Spirit's fruit is nevertheless self-control. And there's some emphasis that comes from the fact that this is the last of the things listed. And the reason I read all those things that are the, the fruits of the flesh is because they're in conflict and in contrast to the fruits of Spirit that come by self-control. But the Spirit of Jesus Christ is sent into your life to produce a different sort of self-control, a self-control that is never divorced from, that is always growing up alongside of all those other fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Remember, all the way back nine or ten weeks ago, if you were with us, I said, look, remember, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. This is the fruit. And if you are a Christian believer, you have the Spirit, and the Spirit is bearing the fruit of the Spirit in you. And so your self-control will be on the same tree, if you like, with love and joy and peace. Self-control, that, that prized uh, Greek virtue, will be baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it will be right there growing in glorious fruit on the same branch as gentleness, that virtue that the Greeks didn't have any time for at all. And so when we read, for example, Paul's boxing metaphor here in 1 Corinthians 9, we have to read it alongside of the nursing mother picture that he drew of himself last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If Paul is a prize fighter, religiously training to win the prize, which he says he is, well, he is also a nursing mother, gentle and loving, and not merely self-controlled. Indeed, part of his self-control is the use of his freedom to serve others and to serve them with gentleness and faithfulness. He says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, that he's ready, after all, to become all things to all people in order to draw anyone who will come 
into the glorious life of the family of God. Now, all thanks to all people, I can hear Nietzsche, I can hear his existentialist friends laughing at Paul. What a waste, they would say, to use your self-control to become all things to all people? Are you kidding me? It's meant for you to become a supercharged version of yourself. How are you going to be, Nietzsche would say, the ubermensch when you're playing the part of a slave, Paul? But that's Paul's secret, isn't it? He can take all of his skill and his intellect and his cultural capital and his linguistic sophistication and his toughness that he's developed. And with the Spirit of God working through him, he can exercise spiritual self-control so that these superpowers, let's just call them that of his, are channeled in love toward the needs of his neighbors. He makes his very body, he says, a slave so that both he and the Greek Christians of the ancient world have a chance to experience the true freedom that they can have in Jesus Christ. He trains He says, I run for the prize. Why? So that I can get a trophy and put it in my trophy case and show all my buddies? No. But I run and I run for the prize so that I can offer myself and the people that I serve to the true victor, the Lord Jesus, as trophies of God's own grace. And only this, he says, is the crown, after all, that will last forever. Paul's self-control is not running aimlessly, he says. It's not self-control for self-control's sake. It is rather a pilgrimage, a race that has a finish line, a destination, and there is, at the end of it, a victory wreath. Now, for many people, we work out and we eat right so that we look a little bit more like our current society's definition of beauty, right? That's what we're doing. We're looking around and we're running aimlessly for an elusive prize that, of course, we're never going to win. But then some of us, we wake up one day and we realize, oh man, I want to watch my children maybe become parents someday. I want to overcome my family history of heart disease, diabetes, I want to swim across Lake Zurich with my neighbor who's into doing that. Okay, now we've got a goal, right? Now there's a finish line. There's a trophy. And the Christian life is self-controlled and self-disciplined because of its goal. It's, the Greeks would say, teleological. It has a telos, a goal. And what is Paul's goal? It's two things. He has a personal goal and he has a goal of his vocation. Personally, he says, Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings. I want to be like him in his death so that I can be like him in his resurrection from the dead. I want to press on. I want to take hold of everything for which Jesus has taken hold of me. How about that for a personal mission statement? And then he has a vocational goal. And he also says this in Philippians. He wants to 
to give the spirit of God such free and full access to his own life, to his moments and his days, so that at the end of those days, it will be clear to everybody who shows up at his funeral that he, Paul, had been poured out throughout his life as an offering so that women and men, boys and girls, could be, by his self-pouring, filled up to overflowing with abundant life and life in Jesus. The Spirit's fruit of self-control begins to grow in our lives when we are ready to say no. When we're ready to say no to all kinds of bad things and to say no to all kinds of legal and permissible things. And even to say no to all kinds of good things in order that we can say yes to just a few ultimate things. Growth in God's grace. A life's calling that blesses other people through our work. And the privilege of being poured out into people. Into the lives of people where we've been placed who need our spirit-filled lives. Now, did you notice as we've gone through the fruit of the Spirit that each one of these qualities, each one of these fruits, is kind of just another way of describing the very character of Jesus himself, right? We should bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, and all the rest because it turns out Jesus has first been loving, gentle, peaceable, and patient and kind with us. But some people have said, ah, but here's where it breaks down, right? At the end of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Jesus doesn't need to be self-controlled. You only exercise self-control in order to prevent what Paul calls the obvious deeds of the flesh that are weeds that grow up and choke the fruitfulness of your life. Well, Jesus didn't have besetting sins, things that he struggled with that weighed him down from which his self-control would have to untangle him. That's just not his experience. Jesus didn't have a raging temper that he had to keep with self-control under wraps. Jesus didn't have a quarrelsome disposition that he had to overcome through discipline. So really, Jesus doesn't bear the fruit of self-control, some might say. But let's look at it differently. The self-control that Jesus exhibited, he exhibited every time that he said no to something evil in order to say yes to his father and ultimately to us. Jesus' self-control is active each time that he says no to something that's legal and permissible in order to say yes to his God and to his beloved people. Jesus' self-control is demonstrated every time that he said no to something good. Good things like public displays of his equality with God. Like justly judging the wicked. Like the impulse to turn a, a stone into a loaf of bread after he'd fasted for 40 days. Jesus laid aside more good things than we could ever lay aside in our lives in order to pursue the one good thing that he most desired, having you and having me to share abundant life with, with his heavenly father in the spirit. And for that, he gave up his right to all kinds of things, 
to a fair trial at the end of his life. To being the judge and instead was judged instead. He gave up his right to strike down the evildoers that mocked him. And he said instead, I'm going to the cross and I'm giving myself completely. And I'm giving myself four and two people whose fruit trees, the fruit trees of their lives, are withered and fruitless. And out of my death, and out of the new life that I bring three days later, their fruit trees will bud and flower and be thick and be heavy laden with low-hanging fruit. Friends, Jesus was self-controlled but not for his own sake, but for your sake. Except in this, Jesus was self-controlled selfishly because he wanted you and me with him. Friends, the world needs the fruit of the Spirit to be born in our lives and in our church's life. Not to force it, not to pretend, and certainly not to do it for ourselves. But the world needs more Pauls and Timothys and Dorcases and all kinds of our heroes of the faith, women and men, whose lives were lived as an offering poured out, whose trees were heavy laden with fruit that comes by the grace of God through the spirit of Jesus Christ. And that's God's glorious vision for you and me and for our lives and for our church. What if it was so? May it be so for the sake of our neighbors and our colleagues and friends and our family and our spiritual family and for our own good and also for the glory of our Savior. Amen? Heavenly Father, We submit ourselves to you afresh. Plant us deep in the soil of your love and grace so that we would bear fruit in season and out and bring praise and honor and glory to the name of our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. We make our prayer in his name. Amen.